out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the Shend. One time, well, no, not one time. He is still a member of the Cravats, but also the very things Grime, Grime Time and lots more. And the exciting news is he has now got a book out called Rub Me Out that's going to be or is available from Advanced Records. It came out at the beginning of the month. It also features insights from the man himself and also the likes of Stuart Lee, Jello Biafra, Penny Rambo, John Robb and also Mick Mercer. Indeed it does. So look, this is the interview, and after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was, yes, how long it took to bring the book out. I know, fascinating. I had just been talking about quite a lot of um, other publications and films that had come out from various bands and artists from the late 70s and 80s. Anyway, The Shend, it's over to you. Take it away. Um, perfectly, to be perfectly honest, last July. <laughs> That was when it, I first thought of it. Basically, I was writing, going to write an autobiography, um, and I started, and I just thought this is going to take years because there was all the band stuff, and then there was um, all the acting stuff, and then I worked for Paul Raymond for eight years uh, uh, in Soho, writing filth. So um, uh, there was a lot of chapters to get through, and. Um, Pete Jones of Paranoid Visions said, uh, well, I was just talking to him one day and said, no, this is going to take forever. And he went, well, you've written 52-odd songs. Why don't you do a song book, but fill it in with anecdotes, get some of your mates to send contributions, and off you go. So yes. I finished it I finished it by Christmas. Um, I formatted it myself, which was a horrendous learning curve. Um, I had no idea what I was doing, but um, and then uh, Pete Jones, Rotator, his printing company, printed it for me. So. Blimey, God, you formatted it yourself. I must admit, that's yeah. that's even harder yeah. than writing the ruddy thing. Well, it, 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 you're right. You're absolutely <laughs> spot on. I mean, it was, you know, I'm pretty good on uh, Word. I'm pretty good on Photoshop, um, doing posters and all the sleeves and everything for records, but. Uh, just no idea what I was doing. So um, the first sort of proof that came back, uh, which is just a few sheets of paper, I'd spaced all the lines wrong. So it looked like um, a book for <laughs> early learning <center laughs> or the, visual, the visually impaired. I mean, it just looked ridiculous. So it was like, uh, back to the drawing board. And then, of course, when you're it's 270 pages or something like that, you and it's all one file, so you move one line, um, then it throws the whole rest of the book out out of whack. So you've then got to go and go back and do it. It just took forever. I mean, time yes. after time after time, and then uh, but yeah, got it in the end. So, it but it's interesting because there is the world. The world is always split into two groups, isn't there? There's people who, when you're doing that editing or publishing, and they say, "Oh, could you just change something?" 
and you know they've never done something <laughs> like that because you realise that's going to take me all afternoon. They go, no, you just have to squeeze that in or just take that out. And you think, no, there are repercussions which are going to be absolutely Ugh. horrendous. So you probably have no, um, a lot more sort of empathy with people in the world of design and publishing. But then you must have done a lot of kind of posters and creative stuff yourself. And did it also mean that you spent a lot of time in your attic looking through boxes of memorabilia? Yeah, yeah, tons of, I've got, yeah, I, I keep everything, so, uh, well, I don't actually, I've found a lot of things missing, but my loft is just full of boxes and boxes of stuff, so, uh, um, and because this was basically a songbook, it, I was able to go right up to all the Antelon stuff, which has only came out last year, um, so, it, it's yeah, it starts in 1977, but ends in December last year, you know. Yes. So um, it was, it's, it's more a travelogue through my um, songs rather than an autobiography or a, a thing about the 80s because um, that'll all come in the biography. <laughs> yes, the 80s. But did you find, because I noticed a lot of people went through mostly quite a downer during last year, the, you know, the musicians and artists and various other people in the creative industries. But you obviously kept very busy because there were, you know, guitarists who've had amazing, you know, life in music, you know, didn't touch the guitar. You know, they said, look, it's just there behind yeah, me. I, yeah. It needs to, you know, I need to do this, the strings, but I can't be bothered because life is just not worth living. But you brought an album out and this book, so you must have been chugging on the coffee quite a lot. Well, to be, to be perfectly honest, I, I thoroughly enjoyed lockdown. Um, I know, yeah, you're not allowed to say that, but it just meant, obviously, the, the cravats couldn't do uh, all the gigs so that we'd got booked. Um, and it was like, well, yeah, I'm useless at just sitting there doing nothing unless there's something good on the telly. Um, so I thought, OK, let's do the book. And me and Joe91, yeah, the bass player from uh, the cravats, we just thought, started sending files to, to each other, and bing, we had an Anzalong album, so we released it, sold it out, and uh, that was that. <laughs> it was pretty good. Really. Yeah, so when did you write Goody Goody Gumdrops? That was that's, that's a fairly recent, recent one, so that was probably 2018. Right. So that was, uh, yeah, right, OK, because that... The production and, and the sound of your saxophone, or not your saxophone, was pretty amazing. So I thought, well, that's, you couldn't have, you know, I'd have been amazed if that had been sort of files being sort of pinged to each other in drop rocks. No, 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 because no, no. uh, um, all the Hurrah Land album, which came out two weeks before lockdown started, uh, great timing, of course, um, and we released the album, uh, which had taken a year and a half to do. So, and, you know, in, in, as far as I'm, I know every, everybody says this, but as far as I'm, I'm concerned, that's the best thing the Cravats ever did. Um, sort of pinnacle, because everything worked. All the production was brilliant. We used uh, Brighton Electric Studios. They're fantastic. We spent lots of time, lots of money, just to get it perfect. And um, we released it, did uh, a session for Mark Riley, um, and that was it. Lockdown started, and that was the end. We had 15, 20 gigs lined up, all cancelled. And it was it was just like, well, what do you do now then? Um, yeah. So it was, yeah, you know, find something to do. 
Yes. But it's interesting because I I sort of... (laughs) I think the same with the Nightingales. I prefer their last album than their early album, which I know you shouldn't say because you're supposed to like the very early stuff. But, you know, I actually, I prefer... <laughs> I've been playing a lot of the cravats to, you know, over the last week and thought, actually, I much prefer the later albums, mainly because the production... Well, that's very pleasing to know because, um, you know, the, the early days, I mean, a lot of the early stuff suffered from atrocious production because we didn't know what we were doing um, and we were at the, you know beck and call of whatever 20 quid somebody had to spend in a studio whereas you know now it's like uh and with the viscount biscuits and joe 91 on bass and guitar they just had the aesthetic spot on of the old stuff but then so you know were up up to the minute on what they were making so um it was uh, yeah iran's my favorite thing i mean dust for the sand i think it's great which is the album before but yeah, there's still things on that. I think, you yeah, could have done that better. But mm. um, Haraland, I just thought, was great. Yeah. Yes, I know. I, well, I was, you know... <laughs> but you always just... One feels a little in- inadequate when you know that Stuart Lee's going to say he loves In Toy Town as one of the great albums of all time. You think, oh, God, I prefer the last <laughs> album. And, you know, he always yeah. makes you feel that big, doesn't he? When you were going back, back to the book and going through it, it was kind of interesting because you had a slightly similar experience to the, the Lunar Chicks because they, they mention, I believe fire records as well in their book and say we can't mention anymore because of various reasons so let's skip that next bit so when you were sort of going back because obviously you've got the cravats but the very things that are the band that a lot of people know how do you feel when you have to sort of look back at that particular period of your life well i mean at the time we were doing it it was you know fantastic and we owned everything and we could and, and like a lot of bands, you, you end up signing a stupid deal that I think a music lawyer once said to us the, with the fire contract, uh, I'm not sure how much of this I should say, but um, when a, a music lawyer who looked at it said, well, you yeah, we, we want drugs when you sign this. And um, no, we weren't. Um, but you just, you, yeah, you're naive and you don't know what you're doing. And But um, yeah, you sign away stuff that you don't even get back when the earth crashes into the sun. So, you know, it's hideous, hideous stuff. So all all the very thing stuff is sort of tied up. Uh, but we have a plan on that, which uh, I can't go into. But um, Does it, does it, uh, are you doing a Taylor Swift? Well, no, no, we're not <laughs> doing a Taylor Swift. Um, but, That's enough. Yeah, I can't, I can't really say, but the next year, um, at the end of the summer next year, which is a long way away, but uh, there's something rather special going to happen. So uh, hopefully, um, the one thing with the very things is everybody in the world knows the Bushy Scream on my Daddy Prince song. So thank, thankfully to the the tube mainly, mm. who did a great video. But um, and, and you know every Halloween it gets played, and you know people still play on Radio Six and heaven knows what else all the time. And um, it's just a tragedy that we can't, because Fire won't re-release it, um, and we can't have it back. So, it, yeah, it's like, how hideous is that? And uh, so, uh, but I've got a plan. Yes. And uh, it will be an amazing plan. Yes. Uh, and it, it will work. It's it, just, uh, 
I can't do anything until next year. <laughs> yeah, a cunning plan. But did you, I mean, when you were growing up, did you have a, you know, because I was born 64, so I'm in my mid to late 50s now. You know, it was the kind of early glam rock period that sort of hit me like a train and I was very obsessed with with the whole lot. And thankfully, David Bowie was my first single, my first love. What was your kind of musical moment that sort of, you would say, changed your life or cultural moment that made you kind of think, that's kind of far out and out there? Well, in the sort of late 70s or mid-70s, because I'm 1957, I was born. Um, I'm very old. But um, so in the, in the 70s, I, was, I really got into the sensational Alex, Alex Harvey band and Alice Cooper and then I really, and Captain Beefheart, to be honest, as well. But uh, And then I, I loved a lot of the glam stuff, so... Slade was sort of lived down the road, and um, I, Slade had just gone in my eyes. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, was, I got into all the um, glam stuff, but I also liked a lot of Tamla Motown stuff because it's dancey, and then um, a lot, quite a lot of the old sort of garage psychedelia from the 60s, you know, the one hit wonders that weren't even a hit. Uh, no. The Nuggets kind of compilation. Was there a sort of a film or a book that, that particularly kind of sort of um, resonated with you at a, at a young age? Because you've got quite a far out sort of uh, imagination. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, I've probably seeing um, Black Sabbath in 1972 in Birmingham when I was about 14 or something like that. And a friend... And and his dad took us to see um, uh, Black Sabbath, and I've just never seen it. Just totally took the top of my head off. I'd never seen anything like it, and it was so sort of dark and scary, but also just incredibly exciting. And uh, I think that's what sort of got me into searching out music all over the place. You know? Yes, absolutely. And, and of course, and of course, then you just you you just went down a record shop and. You know, everybody talked to everybody, and they go, "Ah, well, if you like that, have a listen to this." And then suddenly you're off on a, you know, a tangent musically, and uh, which was great. But these days you've got things like Bandcamp, which are just uh, I, I love Bandcamp. I mean, I think it's I use it for my radio show all the time because it's you you end up suddenly you're in Peru listening to some gypsy metal band <laughs> who's nobody's ever heard of, and you think. Where, where would I have ever heard this? Really? Well, we, I guess we... Well, not really guess, um, but we had the gatekeepers, didn't we? And, and the, the person who probably shaped a lot of people's lives was John Peel. So he was yeah, the person definitely. who, who yeah. would spend all day and every day sort of shifting through, you know, all the reggae stuff and Bulgarian folk or, mm. you know, death metal, and then just say, right, or reggae, and then just kind of bring the best one that he'd heard that, you know, particular period and play it. And you think, thank God for that, because, you know, I'm not going to be a specialist in sort of South African, you know, Afri- you know, music, but he's he's kind of done the work yeah. for me. And here's, here's the Bundu boys or the, you know, the Four Brothers or Thomas McFumo. So it was always kind of very easy, or not easy, but it was kind of convenient, wasn't it, to have John Peel? Well, I think, I mean, you know, it's, yeah, as everybody knows, he changed so many people's lives because it was that, you know, every night, every weeknight, 10 o'clock, you put John Peel on, and the next day or the weekend, you'd go to the record shop and go, can I have this, can I have that? 
And, uh, it, yeah, I mean, he was just a... Uh, probably, uh, I'd say he was one of the most important people in music, you know, even with Elvis Presley and whoever. I think John Peel, you know, was up there with one of the most important people ever in music. But, uh, yes. Contentious, but uh, that's, I'll stick with that. No, no, I did once do an interview with Toya, who, who, who was one of the few people who couldn't pair him, but that's, that's another story, because he didn't play any of her records, but... There's a couple. There's a couple yeah. of wounded people, and I noticed you've you've got a Toya moment in your book, haven't you? Well, not a Toya <laughs> yeah, moment, but <laughs> and I thought, oh yeah. Smash hits that is all I believe. But um, yeah, I mean, you imagine how thrilled thrilled we were when he said that. Yeah, I haven't managed to stop Toya, and I haven't done anything for the grass. classic. As you can tell by the bit in the book, it's a copy of a copy of a copy because I lost the original which was really annoying but yes and when you started the cravats what was your kind of intention because there was a sort of a certain amount of a slightly surreal kind of image you had at, well not about surreal but you definitely dressed up didn't you oh yeah it was always well basically sort of black suits and white shirts and uh, nice ties and um I mean, you know, we always had this thing, which I still have, to be honest, that uh, if, if I want to go to a show, I want to be entertained by somebody putting on a show. I don't want to see a bunch of people on stage who look like they've just got off the bus and they look exactly the same as the audience. I mean, uh, you, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, I'm, maybe it's because of all the things like Alex Cooper and sensational Alex Harvey band, where it was, you, you just come out afterwards and say, whoa, that was amazing. You know, that was a, they really entertained, they made an effort. It's like they made an effort yes. uh, to entertain me. And I, uh, I'm a firm believer in that. It's, if, if I go and, yeah, we've, we've never done a gig where we've just played in jeans and T-shirts. I mean, ever, ever in 45 years, because it would be a hideous crime. Yeah, that's what you do down in the rehearsal room. Why would, why would somebody's just paid a tenner to come and see you? And you've walked out of the rehearsal room and just standing there playing, you know, nah, hideous, you know. Yes. Uh, and did you, I mean, when, when was the point when you thought, I've really committed to this as a lifestyle, not lifestyle, but as a, you know, my path in life? You know, was there, did, when you started the cravats, did it feel like you were going to just do this for a couple of years or was there a sort of a longer. Yeah, I mean, well, the, the, the huge thing which you mentioned in the book was going to see the Stranglers, and it was the day after that we formed the Cravats. Um, but, yeah, with an acoustic guitar and a pair of bongos. Um, and it was, we made the record, um, thanks to me, Mam, who lent us 400 quid. And uh, it was really the first play on John Peel, because you just thought, blimey, we're going to be on top of the pops in three weeks, this is, this is it. And I think the next week I had a appointment with the uh, career opportunities in Redditch, and um, they wanted me to go to Warwick University to do business studies. And while she was in the back room, I uh, I left and just thought, no, I'm going to be a punk rocker. And um, that was sort of it, really. You know, um, that was the last year, last attempt at doing real work yes and when you and when you watched um if you, I'm, I'm guessing you must have watched 
uh, King Rocker, you know, Rob yeah, exactly. Lloyd. Did you did you sort of think, my God, my life has had equally um, the amount of uh, strange ups and downs? I don't know. You probably haven't had a heart attack, but um, hopefully. No, well, luckily not yet. Not yet, but um, yes, kind of kind of related to some of those kind of yes. Well, I couldn't well, have imagined that happening. There's, there are certain artists um, or bands that uh, are absolutely great, um, but they never quite crack it. You know, the, I mean, Nightingales are a classic example. I would, you know, uh, humbly say that the Cravats are the same, where the, it, everything they do is really good, but and the people who like it love it with a passion, but it's like that needs to be multiplied by a hundred to make it successful, you know. So you never <clears throat> you never sell enough records, you never get enough people at your gigs, um, yeah, and you're sort of, everybody has heard about it, everybody's heard of the Nightingales and the Cravats and people like that, but, you know, oh, yeah, I've never actually heard, seen them or listened to anything. I've heard the name, you know. And... Um, which, yeah, to be honest, I mean, throughout history, that's been the case. But it's that it's, it's never bothered me. I don't think it bothers Robert Lloyd. It's just like um, that's the way it is. And it's like, okay, you're never going to be um, ACDC, but nobody would really want to be, you know. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and also, of course, um, you'll be really famous when you're dead. <laughs> yeah. I mean, another band I'll put in there is the Astronauts, um, who they've released loads and loads of LPs. Absolutely brilliant. Mark Astronaut is one of my favourite lyricists, um, and you know the, they'll play a gig and there's forty people there, and you just think, what? Like, yeah, there's no sort of comprehension to it. But um, recently, even I went to see Perubu in Brighton probably four years ago now, and there were 62 people there. And you just think, this is Pear Ubu. I mean, it's you know, one of the best bands ever. Yes. And, um, uh, you know, yeah, they play in London and they'll get, you know, 250 people. But this was Brighton and just nobody could be asked to turn up. And you just think, hey, this is Pear Ubu. You, you know, I don't know. So... Uh, I've sort of got I've got used to it, and but I don't understand it. I still don't understand it, you know. Mm, yes, well, I, I, I yeah, I sort of remember seeing. I think it was an anti poltax gig with the astronauts. But actually, I, the other guy was um, well. There's lots actually, so we won't keep going. But uh, Joseph Porter from Blythe Power. I keep thinking. His lyrics are incredible, yeah. and and one day someone will yeah. write a book and, and put all his lyrics in, and then explain how yeah. how fantastically complicated and how much research went into every historic song that he's written, which is yeah. fantastic. But um, bizarrely, you know, you you would only get twenty people at a gig, so um, yes, you're not going to yeah. get you're not no, going to get rich on Blythe Power, are you? No, I mean that's just the way it is, and it's like if I still, you know. I mean, weirdly, at the back of your mind, you still have to think that initial thought of, I'm going to be on top of the pops next week. Because, you know, I mean, it's like a little thing where you think, well, yeah, sooner or later people will go, actually, they're brilliant. Oh, God, yeah, do you want to play at our festival? Here's 4,000 quid, you know. Um, and there's a massive crowd. But you also know that that's never going to happen. <laughs> but... Uh, 
you have to have that I'm going to be on top of the pops next week. Yes. Otherwise, uh, it's like you know, you're just treading water. And being based in dear old East Anglia, there was a lovely bit by Cathy Unsworth in in, ah, right, yeah. in your book, which. Because there was a comedian, well, there still is a comedian who came from Norwich called Carl Minns, who was um, from yeah. Yarmouth, and he did the Nimmo Twins, and lots, he writes for a lot of other people on Radio 4 and stuff like that. So he, he, I did an interview with him, and he explained the importance of an art college in a little town. And, and he mentions Great Yarmouth and says, you know, this was the only place that the kind of alternative kids would go to. And Cathy kind of explains that so well in your book, doesn't she? Absolutely. And I mean... I mean, I think another important thing is that uh, small town England is just people coming from places like, you know, Redditch and Great Yarmouth and Solihull. And, you know, it's like you gravitate to anything of any worth anywhere. So you you instantly form a pretty uh, select band of um, friends, you know. Yes, absolutely. a A lot of those people will... Yeah, they want to sort of break out of Great Yarmouth and Soliol and Redditch, so the only way really to do it is to do some sort of music or writing or art or, you know, just something that will get out of your mundane existence. And um, Well, I suppose it reminds me of that big black song, Kerosene, by dear old yeah. Steve Albini, and there is that sense of sort of like going slowly in bonkers and you're either going to end up in prison or... Probably yeah. in Hollywood, and um, well, you might there might be an in between. You might be at the theatre or Norwich, but <laughs> for Panto. But then you know it is yes, you're right. You know those winters probably on the sort of coast or towns like Yarmouth will shape yeah. you, won't they? They'll make you or break you. But um, well, it, it, yeah, it exactly, make you or break you. And, and if if you've got sort of yeah, you, know, you probably you know read quite a lot, and you probably listen to interesting music and. You, you want to learn more, and you're not going to learn more if you stay where you are. So you have to go somewhere. And I mean, obviously London is the one you know a lot of people gravitate to, um, which I did, and which you know Kathy did, and lots of other people, <laughs> because that's where yeah, that's where the action is. Yes, absolutely. So when you did your book, because it vaguely kind of has nice, like you had the Karats years, then you had the Very Things years. When you came to the end of the Very Things, because during the 80s, you know, we had that sort of post-punk period and then we had the kind of indie period with, you know, like, I suppose, you know, I know it's a bit tricky now, but there was the Smiths between 83 to 87 where things felt like indie pop was really a thing. And then they broke up, Ecstasy came along, all those bands like the, the, uh, the Wolfhounds, Yeah, Yeah, No... Um, yeah, June Brides—they'd all kind of, kind of pretty well exhausted and said, "That's it, I've had it." And also, the next wave of sixteen to eighteen-year-olds want their, their kind of soundtrack and their band that they've discovered. Yeah. So, so a lot of people conk out—that's <laughs> a technical term—and and the very things, you know, also conk out at that stage. What yeah. is this when you hit the acting world? And yes, it was really because I'd, I'd sort of moved to London. Um, and um, the sort of bands, you know, obviously it was difficult to still be in the cravats and the very things when I was in London and they were up in the Midlands. So, um, and yeah, it, we did the very things did load, uh, well three or four European tours and which were great. But then it, it sort of uh, I found out you could get an equity card as a. 
if you'd been a singer in a band. And it was when equity cards were really important. Uh, you couldn't do anything on the BBC or anything with it if you didn't have an equity card. And um, you, you literally walked in the office where look, there's a picture of me on the single. I'm a singer. I've just been offered. There ain't nothing like a dame in the West End, but I can't do it without an equity card. And they went, come back tomorrow and we'll give you one. And they did, you know, um, which was ridiculous because if you're an actor, you couldn't get one for love and the money. And, you know, there were people going, becoming magician's assistants and things just to try and get enough contracts to get one. But uh, I got one in two days, which is brilliant. Yes. Um, and then I did some extra work, which was, uh, well, it was great because you got you know, £100 a day for standing in a field in your socks. Um, and then I, I did uh, the Paradise Club with uh, Dirty Den and um, a couple of others as well, Victor Spinetti. And um, they gave me lines, and just so, which was obviously terrifying. But um, so I did that, and then I got a really good agent who just got me one job after another. Right. Did you become slightly typecast with your kind of. Oh, absolutely, which is fantastic. I mean,. Uh, Ask Leonard Nimoy. It's just, it's being typecast is the best. Because, <laughs> uh, um, no, I mean, yeah, if they wanted a, uh, a great big balding bloke um, bug, then uh, there was probably 15, 20 of us in London. You'd go for a casting and you stood, you know, one in, half of them could talk properly or um, looked funny or... Uh, so you, you, you sort of one in seven chance of getting every job, you know, which was great. You know. and, he's t- and it was all, yeah, the, quite often it would be, yeah, I just played myself. So obviously a thugger, thugger version of myself. But, uh, yeah, you turn up for a job and they go, actually, forget wardrobe. Can you just wear what you're wearing? <laughs> it, it's easier, you know. And, uh, yeah, and it, it was all sort of, you know, four words or six lines or something but you're on the telly and your mum could watch it and it was just absolutely brilliant and you got paid tons of money so yes and you probably thought this is this is why um i am the next yep. david bowie well go well, on. well uh, yeah that was, that was <laughs> it i did sort of think yeah that's just going to go on forever now i found my vocation i'm going to be a famous actor and um <clears throat> but he lasted about 15 15 to, to 20 years of really good. And then as you get older, you slip into a different bracket. And you're not, you can't be the enforcer young thug anymore. You can't be the motorcycler. Um, and you can't be the old big boss. So you're sort of, you know, old fan driver, this and that, you know. Yes. But it did, did. But I was sensibly just most of my money away so um, and paid off my mortgage in London so I just thought yeah, yeah, it doesn't really matter yes absolutely so then is 2000 before 2016 were you doing any music you know before the cravats came back again well I, I did Grime Time which was the um, uh, Rusty Tufty motorcycle um, gang um, and with uh, Jules Webb who used to be in the English subtitles of another band on Small Wonder back in the day. And uh, both of us loved sort of 60s psychedelic biker films. 
So we just did um, the Grime Time Spirit of Disgust album. was all uh, based on that sort of stuff, yeah, but our own songs. Yes. But then what made, um, what made you sort of do the phone call for the cravats to re-emerge? Um, to be honest, it was Daz, from, who um, is one of the people who runs Rebellion Festival in Blackpool. And um, I think 2008, he got in touch somehow with me and just said, we'd love to have the cravats on. Um, uh, would, would you reform to play the festival? And uh, uh, he offered a nice, uh, handsome uh, fee. And I thought, well, hey, that'd be good fun. So I got a hold of everybody. And uh, it was sort of on. And then um, my sort of cohort didn't want to do it fairly close to when it was going to happen. So I had to cancel it. Uh, but luckily, Daz asked us for the next year, 2009, and I just thought, oh, I'm just going to sort it out myself, you know, so, um, and not ask people. So uh, I got a band sorted out, and um, we went and did it, which was brilliant. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Did, um, you know, with, with, the, with the band coming back together, was it always, well, it wouldn't have been actually at the time, but, but you sort of have brought out two new albums. I mean, did that, was that something that kind of surprised you, the, the enthusiasm to want to record again? Well, it, it was because in the Reformation, there's basically me and Spaw Nan, the, the sax player. Um, we're the only original members, but the, the sort of the, the two <laughs> key members. Um, and so I got um, uh, Rampton Garstang on drums, who strangely uh, came from Redditch. So he, he took over the drums. Um, and uh, I had two other people doing guitar and bass. We did some gigs and we just played old material, which was all right, but it was a bit like a, like being a cabaret band, you know, just playing all this old stuff. But it, it didn't feel like it was right to write new stuff because um, it, well, it just didn't feel like a, a newish band. And then... Um, uh, they sort of left um, the guitarist and uh, bass player and I got Joe uh, 91 who used to play with the Astronauts and um, Viscount Biscuits who's the guitarist with Bevis from um, so and as soon as they joined basically it was just like flipping it it just feels like it did when you were a teenager yes. so we started writing pretty straight away and by uh, I don't know. I mean, I think by the time Dustbird of Sound came out, I think the first gig after that album came out, we didn't play a single old track. We just played everything from Dustbird of Sound. And nobody came up afterwards going, oh, you didn't play this, oh, you didn't play that. Um, so we just thought, well, yeah, we're obviously doing something right. So, uh, uh, I mean, basically the only old thing we play is I Hate the Universe which ends the set every single gig and always has done. <laughs> yes, blimey, that's... Is it easier now? Because I've noticed a few bands who reformed. There's, there's, there's two, aren't there? There's two stories of this. There's the one that is the original members and it goes really badly, and there's the band who reforms, but with a few different members and, and a bit yeah, of a yeah. clearer kind of whose band it is. Is it kind of, with you, does it feel a lot easier just saying, actually, I am 
kind of the cravats with Nam as well. Yeah, because um, the lucky thing was that I was I was always the face of it anyway, and right from the beginning. So, and um, uh, the only other yeah the the other thing that everybody remembers about the cravats was the saxophone, and for is still in it and writes all the saxophone. So. Um, Basically, sort of, you know, having two key members um, <laughs> was pretty good. Even though I was originally the bass player and singer, um, but <clears throat> it's all too complicated doing both now. So, um, uh, and no, I don't, I mean, we've, we've existed longer as this version of the Gravats than the original did. So, um, yeah, yeah, most people just regard. They like the old stuff and all precinct and the Peel sessions and things, but. Yeah, it's the new stuff that people sort of, yeah, want to hear, so which is nice. Yes, absolutely. And if you could say something to your kind of 16 to 18-year-old self, kind of beginning that kind of murky and interesting world of, you know, both being in a band and creativity, what, is there something that you would have whispered to them? Um, uh, I don't know. I, I would certainly say pick a weird name. That would probably be my advice before I did pick a weird name. Um, uh, as soon as you become, uh, which is another thing I got off Alice Cooper, to be perfectly honest, is that if you give yourself a fake name, um, you can do anything you like. And uh, it's not you, it's your cartoon characters. Oh. So by becoming the Shind, um, it's great. Yeah, everybody knows the Shind. Well, yeah, they've heard the word. Um, and uh, it's brilliant, you know. So yeah, I can go to the shop, and they think I'm called Chend. And um, well, I am called Chend now, but back then I wasn't, you know. So uh, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd advise anybody sixteen wait till you, uh, wait a year, then just pick a funny name, <laughs> <laughs> get away with murder. Yes. But, Good for tax purposes as well. Nice, but that's always that's always good to do. Keep you. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, yeah, there's all the sort of cliched things of follow your heart. And, uh, I mean, the other thing was, if you possibly can, avoid actually doing any work. You know, proper work, real work. You know, working for the the man. Uh, but it's very very difficult. And back then it was easy because you could just sign on the dole for years. Yes, um, well... Nowadays, you can't do anything like that, and you've had it, you know. So. The Job Seekers Alliance and Enterprise Alliance scheme has created a lot of bands. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, I did the Enterprise Alliance scheme twice. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, once as a magician's assistant. Oh, nice. Um, With a thousand pounds in your bank account. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was just brilliant. Uh, yeah, and then you could just get on with what you wanted to do. But uh, I remember going down... At, at one point after uh, eight years... Uh, in Redditch on the Dole, the, they called me in for an interview and they, they tried to, they were going to prosecute me uh, for failing to maintain myself. Um, which is just, I would, have, I would have loved to have gone to court for that. But um, I found out from this book, um, Know Your Rights book, that uh, they'd only ever successfully done it once. And so I argued the point and they never did. Uh, so I carried on for another two years. <laughs> God, that's good. Yeah. That's very good. And does that mean, because you did say at the beginning that you're going to also write your autobiography as well? Yeah, yeah. I'm ploughing through that. I mean, it's, it's, 
there's a lot to remember and a lot. To, I'm not very good with dates and specific. How oh, this happened in Chelmsford, you know, it's like I know it was roughly somewhere that wasn't here or there, but so I have to keep you know, cross-referencing and things, you know. Otherwise, oh yeah, as I did with some of the. Um, rub me out book is just make it up. I mean, nobody knows, and uh, who cares? Yes, well, it, it came over in the in the Nightingales, didn't they? About fault, creating a false narrative. Now, look, yeah. I, might, I might have just missed something here, but in the book, there's the MM. Now, if I just miss some, who is the MM in the book? That's um, yeah, yeah it explains that right at the beginning. Actually, so uh, that's Mick Mercer. Right. Good, Mick Mercer. So, Mick Mercer, because I, uh, I asked for contributions from loads of people and got some lovely ones, and uh, Mick Mercer, who's, you know, uh, hopefully you know him, but he's well, a yes. goth overlord and writer <laughs> and... Photographer. Yes. Yeah, um, I bought yeah. some of his books. Oh, he's great, and, and he edited Zigzag and Melody Maker and loads of other things. Um, and when I asked him to contribute but yeah i said i'll oh, just write something about you know your favorite songs or something so he, he took it on himself to write a bit about every single song i've ever written and uh so yeah it just became part of the whole book you know but yeah in, in the introduction it explains who mm is right um, i'm not uh, sure if because i have looked at the the it's a pdf so i'm not quite sure well it might be there but oh, of course yeah you didn't have a proper box so it's not easy to Necessarily easy to read. No, but it's but, uh, uh, yes. I'd, I'd been looking at the MM, thinking who the hell's MM? Sorry, Mick uh, Mercer. Now I know it all. Yes, I followed his kind of story about his cat recently, which was very sad. So, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, there again, he's one of those people I met when he worked on Melody Maker or Sounds. I think when I first moved to London, he he's got the uh, we used the a bit of one of his reviews on the back of uh, the Cravats in Toy Town, the first album. Um, he came to see us at the Hope and Anchor in London. And he sort of fell in love with the band. And uh, we've just been real good mates ever since. And uh, he's, he's just really funny. He's a great writer. And uh, because he'd written on every single song, I just thought, no, you know, I'm not leaving bits out. You, I'm just going to put all your bits in totally. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I have to say, it is, um, I've loved it. You know, it's, oh, it's, it's you. great to see the, the photo. I mean, it's great seeing the photographs, seeing the stories, you know, let's face it. It's just because it's such a time period, isn't it? You know, that can't be any other decade. That's the other thing, no. isn't it? You just look and think. And not many people took cameras during that period, did they? Well, so. that was a weird thing. I mean, I used to love this. Uh, it's an old Russian. Praktiga. Praktiga. Yeah. And, um, you know, <laughs> great bulky thing. And you say, what am I carrying this around for? And then. I think here I've got a, a sort of folder with uh, about 600 negatives from all those. I mean, sorry, Mick Mercer used to do it as well, but, uh, yeah, I, I've got loads of photos of jam jars and carpets and uh, cupboards, because you know, so, I didn't really know what I was doing. But, um, and of course, with black and white film, you could process it yourself. So in your bedroom in, uh, you know, pitch darkness... So I used to sort of process them myself as well, and uh, uh, I'm flipping glad that I kept them all, you know, so 
as, as a record, it's, it's superb. You know? It is fantastic, yes, because actually that's one of the things that a lot of people don't... I mean, there are some clubs, you know, obviously CBGB's, the Mud Club, yeah. but there's a lot in England where people obviously didn't take photographs, and it's really hard to convey the excitement of a place when it has no pictures to sort of highlight that. So, um, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's such a shame because, I mean, obviously now everybody's got stupid iPhones and click, click, click all the time, and it's the opposite, really. It's just totally irritating. And for a band, you end up... You know, people post this appalling footage of you on YouTube of, you know, you doing some song, but they're standing right over on the right-hand side, and it's just this horrible, messy noise. And you think, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I, you, and you want to just take it down, because it, it's horrible. You know, it's not even a... Uh, historical statement because it's just appalling, you know. Yes. But um, yeah, back then it was like uh, nobody did anything. I mean, there was we played with a birthday party in '83 at the uh, Zigzag Club in London, and somebody filmed two songs of ours on a Super 8 camera uh, with sound. And um, I, it's, I've, I've spent 25 years tracking it down to a bloke in New Zealand. Uh, this is last year, I think. And um, I got in touch with him. He said, yeah, I've still got it. It's in the loft. Uh, sent him some money to convert it to digital at some you know, place in Auckland. Um, he sent me the file. Uh, I put it up on uh, YouTube last year, I think. And it's uh, I Hate the Universe, but the original band, the crowd, um, the sound quality, yeah, I mean, it's Super 8, so it's not brilliant, but it's, it is a fantastic colour. It's like a fantastic record of an event, you know. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, so, yeah, so I mean, it's just such a shame there's not more stuff, but uh, what can you do? What can you do? Anyway, look forward to the future, as uh, Slade once said. It's only just yeah. begun, so there you go. Well, it's only just begun. <laughs> yes, I mean, it's all been very weird uh, for a good long while and will probably continue to be a bit weird. But uh, um, and I, I must admit, I haven't watched a single streamed gig um, because it's just, yeah, no, I can't do that. Because, I mean, it's great that people are doing them, but it's not for me, you know. It's like it has no. to be standing there leaping about or something or getting drunk, you know, but... Uh, no, it doesn't work, because all you do is look at their kitchen and go, mm, nice, nice, uh, yeah, well, nice yeah, units. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and it's like, then, oh, the cat interrupts it. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, no, it is all, it is all a bit, um, but, uh, you know, needs must, I suppose, and people just wanted to play. Yeah. Just want to play. Anyway, look, well, yeah. thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing. If you want, I can always send you the link, and you can yeah, always... Yeah, well, definitely send me the link, because I think I found one of your links and I lost it again, so I don't actually know where it is. And if you send me the link, then I'll obviously stick it up on my social media. <laughs> I know, this is it, actually. But, uh, our platforms, lovely, our platforms. to uh, post it around. Yes, well, look, thanks a lot. And like I said, love the book. It's fantastic. Oh, and, well, that's great. I mean, yeah, obviously, it's great to mention the book because uh, I could do with selling more of them. Um, and uh, uh, you've got a link to where people can get it or something. I yes, believe, definitely. Okay. Anyway. But, uh, yeah, it's done very well. Uh, we're on the third edition, I think, next week, which is uh, ridiculous. So, wow, that's really uh, cool. 
So we done, yeah, we did, we did 250 in three days. Um, I wish I wish we record sold like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we did another a second edition of 250, which I think there's four left. So we'll go into the third. And that's with two reviews and just people like your good self and uh, friends on Facebook going, hey, great, I'll buy one. Ooh, oh, I've got this. It's great. You know, so uh, and it's a lot better than, you know, doing some silly sponsored ad in Facebook or, you know, you just sound like an, an idiot. <laughs> yes, this is true. So, a bit uh, desperate. Word of mouth. That's how it used to be. That's how it still is. So, yes. Yeah. It's nothing like a recommendation from another person. That's always good. Yeah. Anyway, look, yeah. thanks so much, and enjoy the sunny day. Well, okay, and you, absolutely lovely to chat. And, yeah, definitely send me a link. I will. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. And that, dear listener, is how you end the conversation, or not. I love to leave those in because they're very fumbly and slightly self-conscious. But anyway, look, that was me in conversation with the Shend one time member of the very things but also member of the cravats do check out the new album because there's some amazing songs on it and uh, personally i think the production is so much better um and also go and buy a copy of his book rub me out it is fantastic and it does also um yes include a little bit from kathy unsworth about great yarmouth which brought a smile to my face anyway look um yeah i don't know just google the shend the gravats, the very things, rub me out book, and um, hopefully buy a copy. It will blow your mind. And fantastic pictures. Anyway, and this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Also, yeah, just keep it positive. Frankly, I don't care if you've got issues. Um, and also, yeah, all these interviews have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, look, have a great week, and stay safe. <laughs>